This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And this week, Carol, HBO, it's the cover story, a fascinating look inside what once was really a TV pioneer, really defined what we watch, but falling behind. Right. It's a different world when it comes to content creation and distribution. And of course, the magazine known for its survey of MBA programs, business schools, we've got a little bit of an update from recruiters, what they're looking for and how they rank the top B-Schools. It's also, interestingly, not all the same names. I was very fascinated by that. Plus, we take you to El Salvador, where there's a city of coffins of sort building up an economic take on a pretty tragic political scene there. But first, Carol, we've got something from the economic section. President Trump's overhaul of taxes that resulted in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 cut the U.S. corporate tax rate by a lot. But Jason, I think the question is, did it result in companies going out and doing a bunch of spending and that, as a result, help the economy? You know who's got the answer to that question? The guy in front of us. The guy in front of us, one of our all-time favorites here at Bloomberg, Tim Mahidi. He's an economist with our Bloomberg economics team here with us in New York. So, Mahidi, I felt like reading your story it was a really good reminder of how economics actually works in in real life. So as you try and analyze this Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, how do you do it? It's very difficult. And I think I want to start out by saying, and this is on The Economist, on the one hand, on the other, is that this is a very hard thing to measure. A lot of other people have taken a stab at it, and the range of estimates and impacts is quite broad. That being said, uh, I put a lot of time into looking at, okay, we've had a lot of promises from the White House about what this was going to do for the economy. We've heard about consumer spending. We've heard about investment. But are we actually going to see that second piece? Are we actually going to see a boost from investment? And the takeaway from this piece is, yes, it's just not very big. Um, and so this this plays into the supply side argument a little bit um, that you will see something from tax cuts, but it also kind of puts a puts a bit of a cap on and says, look, even if you get something, we're only talking about a tenth of a percentage point here to growth last year and and this year. All right. So Carol was an econ major. Take a step back. I was an English major. This is where we take a step back and you remind us supply side, demand side, basic definitions here. Sure. So supply side economists believe that if you deregulate and you give tax cuts, that that will help incentivize businesses to invest. Their view is what's keeping businesses from investing is actually the government. Demand side economists will tell you, look, that matters, but what matters more is where we are in the economic cycle. Is there demand for those products? So that was essentially the framework with which I started with. And we put together a model that looks at both of those things. It puts components in from both tax cuts and these other demand side effects. Turns out um, demand siders win in this case. And that's because these demand side capacity constraints, output gap, those kinds of things matter much more than tax cuts. I mean, capital spending did increase, right, after the tax or after the corporate tax cuts. That's right. And so I think this is where it gets a little tricky. Just because you see a number go up uh, a year after something happens doesn't mean that that is the reason that the tax cuts are the reason that number was. Cause and effect. We can't necessarily say that that's a true one to one correlation. Exactly. And so in order to do that, we had to put together a counterfactual kind of situation, which what would have been like if we hadn't had tax cuts. You talk a lot about the effect of tax rate. Go into a little bit of that and why that's important to discuss when we're chatting about this. No, absolutely. And again, this is, you know, you see a lot of times in the headlines, well, tax rates were 35% for corporations are dropping on 21%. That's a 14 percentage point decrease. Sounds like a lot, right? Here's the thing though. There are all these other pieces of tax reform and, and just the structure of the tax code that don't involve the actual rate, but do change the amount of taxes that businesses pay. Mm-hmm. So one thing to look at is this effective tax rate, which is the amount the businesses reported paying in taxes divided by their corporate profits. That's a better measure of the overall tax burden for businesses, that number is much lower. And the change in that number from the tax code, uh, from the TCJA, was also much lower. Well, and what's so interesting, too, and this goes to the politics of this, right, is what is ultimately behind a lot of the rhetoric is this idea of people just feel more confident. CEOs feel confident because even if the numbers don't bear it out, they just feel like, ooh, I got a little more money to play with. Same with consumers. This whole notion of 
animal spirits. That's something I understand a little bit more than all these economic right. terms. Right. So how does that play into it? Sure. And I think, so if, if we look at what the model showed us, there were two pieces that mattered quite a bit. The first is the output gap. So that's kind of this measure of how far the economy is from neutral. That's a little hard to do because, or from, from potential, that's hard to do because you can't measure potential. And the second was this animal spirits, this business confidence. That mattered quite a bit, quite a bit more than tax cuts, actually. Mm. Um, and so that makes sense if you step back and think about it, right? If you're a CEO, and you're thinking, oh, there's demand for my product. My existing facilities can't meet that demand, which is what that output gap is supposed to measure. And I feel good about the future of the of, of my economic prospects. I'm going to invest. Right. So that's that animal spirits component that John Maynard Keynes has brought up and others have brought up. And it's similar to the consumer side. Consumers do something similar, right? They go, oh, I have more money. Do I feel good about the future or do I, do I feel bad? I need to put that in the bank. And that's similar to to businesses. It's important to have this discussion, right? Because as you say, the White House comes out with estimates and said, hey, look, we did this. We cut taxes, the corporate tax rate. Businesses are spending and look at what it did to the economy. And I think they say like a full percentage point, did they say? And as you say, there's lots of different estimates out there. So we kind of have to be smart when we hear this stuff. Absolutely. And that's hard because there's so many estimates and because there's these things are so easy to fudge around the margins and the models are all different. Um, but I think the important thing to note, you know, the results came out, I wouldn't say to my expectations. We did, you know, standard scientific theory here. We mm-hmm. tested a hypothesis. Right. But I don't, but I think with when you get these kinds of things, if you can find other work that supports those hypotheses and supports your results, then it's usually like you're starting to build a, a house, right, out of brick and one piece at a time. So, Tim Mahidi of Bloomberg Economics, Jason, you and I love talking to him because we, first of all, kind of a lesson reminding us about basic economic principles, supply side versus demand side, and reminding us maybe how some of these programs that are put up by the administration, whether or not they're really effective. It's also so Bloombergy because it essentially <laughs> says, here's the rhetoric, but also here's the numbers. Right. So Bloomberg Business Week known for so many different things, Jason. We know that investment strategies, they catch trends, they do deep dives into companies. They also are known for their annual business school rankings. We know it well. We went yeah. out to Stanford when mm-hmm. Stanford was named the top business school in the country, nay, the world, uh, last year. This week in the solutions section, highlighting what recruiters think about business schools. Yeah. That's pretty important because... People go to business school to get a job. <laughs> exactly. Demetra Kassanides is with us. She's the editor of the Solutions section. So tell us a little bit about what you wanted to cover here. Sure. Um, this is uh, also in partnership. You know, we work very closely with our data team. Yes. And given that very reason that Jason just mentioned, I mean, it's really all about the jobs ultimately, right? What are you going to do? Um, even if you're aspiring to start your own business, uh, most of the time you're going to go down a route where you want to get a job first, get some experience and then apply that. So what recruiters think and what they're looking for in candidates is really important. So this is the same um, data pool that we that we built the global ranking on that, you know, we released the U.S. ranking, then the global ranking in December. And this is a deeper dive by the data team into several key questions about um, what recruiters are looking for. And they're, you know, they're assessing the quality of the candidates from the school and which schools they're coming from. And that's what leads to these sort of mini rankings in these six areas. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, I candidly looked at this and thought, before I, before I dove into it, thought, okay, well, it's just going to be the same names. It's actually not the same names. No, uh, I mean, Stanford definitely are. comes at the top yeah. of several of these six. Right. We, you know, we picked six questions that we thought were really important. So this is by no means, you know, um, like every single question and, and category they looked at. But yes, there are differences. And you'll see many schools pop up on these that are not in the top five or 10 of the global ranking. They are in the top 30 because that yes. was the selection that we made. Right. We pulled the top top 30, we applied these questions across the board to each of them and then came up with these results. What I find interesting, too, is kind of the trends that we've been talking about a lot here at Bloomberg over the last couple of years, and that is innovation, entrepreneurship, diversity. Mm-hmm. These were important to the recruiters. Very important, sure. I mean, creativity and innovation, absolutely, yeah. more yeah. and more, which goes hand in hand also with entrepreneurship, right? Like, how, how you know, what are the ways in which the schools are enabling these individuals to go beyond the basics and the very standard yeah curriculum that we know about and to really break out of that and and be creative thinkers and apply interesting, you know, problem solving solutions to things that they're coming up with. So that's important. Diversity is certainly a big one. And the and the interesting um, result there is that three of in the top five are international programs. Yeah. Right. And that 
connects a little bit into what else we are covering in the section with respect to financing for foreign students who are yeah. looking to study at business schools outside their home countries. That's an interesting yeah, financial and, story. And I'm too. glad you guys tackled this because mm-hmm. in addition to getting a job and partially because this is really, truly an investment in getting you know a different or better job, it does matter how much it costs. And more importantly, how much you pay for it and how much debt you've got to right, take exactly. on. So what did you find here? Because you've got some great anecdotes and some great data. Yeah, this is a look at um, primarily one financer, Prodigy, which was founded in 2007 by um, three INSEAD grads. And one of the three had the experience of getting accepted into INSEAD, and, and which is based in Fontainebleau, France, and not, having, not being able to find financing. You know, financing, if you're a U.S.-based student applying to a U.S. program, there there are options right. for you. And, you know, in the UK, if you're from the UK, but you you look at other countries and other programs, and it's not so easy to find financing, you know, depending on where you come from, what your background is, and what, what the particulars are of that country in terms of, you know, the availability of loans and credit. So, so Prodigy started this business, and it has been growing tremendously as interest in international programs has been growing. That was another theme that we saw coming off of the survey yeah. in the fall, that more and more for a variety of reasons, programs in the UK, throughout Europe, in China, lots of big programs in China are seeing more and more demand from people all over the world. And those folks need a way to fund these educations. And Prodigy is not doing what typical lenders do. You don't need a cosigner. Um, you don't necessarily need collateral. It's all looking at what you um, potentially will earn in the future and what they see are pretty good risks, you know, for people coming out of certain high tier programs that, you know, that will assure them jobs at a certain level and at a certain salary. I love how that turns it upside down, right? It's not about what are your kind of backward looking assets, but it's forward looking in Very terms much of so. earnings potential, uh, potential. It's also, they do refinancing, right? So for just, they just introduced that, yeah. Which is, right? So you take on debt that's got maybe not a great rate and they'll take on that you debt. You can lower it. And, and, you know, these are higher rates that you're starting with. Um, but as one of the sources in the story said, you know, for me to reduce my rate for from 7.5, a couple of points down, that's meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And and Especially more importantly, it's there for me. The it's an option. I actually have that option as somebody yeah. um, who's, you know, in another country from another country. And so they, they just rolled out the refinancing product at the end of last year. All right. So before we get too far away from the schools who were at the top, tell us about, you know, Stanford, obviously, uh, you mentioned, but I was very proud, even though I didn't go to the business school to see Georgetown, uh, represented very well in a number of these categories. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder, you mentioned the international uh, names. What did seem to sort of, what what were you able to elicit trend-wise of sort of who popped up more repeatedly from the, from the recruiters? What types of schools? Well, I mean, um, you know, I don't, I think that it's not surprising that Stanford, first of all, did come yeah. out on top in several of the categories yeah. because in a way, um, that global ranking result. One more thing though, you got to mention, and that is about the idea of the MBA degree now becoming much more uh, involved with technology and you've got MBA students who code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Trends, as I've said, that we've been seeing for a while, and there are people who really, I mean, that this is not a theme. The theme of the pipeline starting much earlier yeah. and really training people much earlier is something that for whichever type of professional school we see people talking about for many years now. But Michael Grimes, who is a big deal tech banker from Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. you know, we know him from handling some of the biggest tech deals, including the Facebook IPO and the Google IPO, and he's going to be involved with Uber's IPO. Um, he very much through his experience, through his contacts, and through knowledge of a program at Penn that started in the late 70s, believed that there should be a way to combine science degrees and business degrees for undergrads Mm -hmm. and really um, instill students with those skills early on that they'll come out so much better equipped to then really be on a path to leadership, but um, to really understand the guts of the types of things that they're going to be working on. That's editor Demetra Kessanides. And Carol, what I love about that is, honestly, the reason you go to business school, get a good job. Yeah, it's all about that. What are recruiters looking for? And they rank uh, the top MBA programs. And they're interested in things like innovation, entrepreneurship, diversity. And as you pointed out, 
The lists might be a little bit surprising. Some names unexpected. I loved it. So one of the feature stories this week, Jason, is about a tale of two towers in Chicago. Throwing traders, the CME, some politics, you get an idea of what we're talking about. Well, let's mm-hmm. not forget, we're also throwing in Wayne's World. Nick Baker, here <laughs> with us from Chicago. Take us to this rather nondescript, but very, very important place just outside your city. Yeah, so it, you know, it turns out if your mental picture of how trading works is that it's a bunch of people, um, usually dudes, stand around in a trading pit in Chicago or New York, um, and that's how trading gets to done. To use another um, Chicago I'm, example, Ferris Bueller's Day <laughs> Off, you know, when they're all like waving around and Cameron is trying to mimic them, right? Yeah, guess what? That movie barely exists anymore. That reality barely exists anymore. The reality <laughs> so of different. the reality of modern markets is that trading occurs in kind of nondescript buildings, um, data centers. Um, in one of them, one of the most important ones is right here just outside Chicago in the town of Aurora, perhaps best known as home of the Wayne's World movies. <laughs> right. It's all about fast trades and having access to that. So tell us about kind of the battle of two buildings, or actually one I don't think has been built yet, right? Yeah. So uh, CME Group, um, the world's biggest futures exchange, uh, more than 60 billion market cap company. They're a giant in trading. Their data center is in Aurora. And the stock market, on the other hand, is based in several data centers in New Jersey. So if you're a trader um, you and you want to be a player in modern markets, you've got to have a super fast communications network in between the Aurora data center and the data centers in New Jersey. So over the years, um, you know, Michael Lewis actually wrote about in his mm-hmm. book Flash Boys several years ago about uh, this company that laid a fiber optic line um, in between uh, Chicago and New Jersey that was faster than other available means of conveying information. It was a huge deal, and traders spent a lot of money using that service. But very quickly, that service became obsolete for traders because they realized you can actually send information much faster, about 50% faster, through the airwaves using microwave radio transmissions. And so over the past almost a decade, they've been building these microwave networks to shoot information really fast between the Chicago suburbs and, and New Jersey. Um, so this latest story is about the fact that those networks have gotten really good and um, you know, people have inched their, their radio equipment really close to the data center because that gives them an edge. The closer they are to the data center with the radio equipment, the more their information stays in the air, the faster they are and the more of an edge they have over the competition. But the airspace this, has to be clear, clear right? That's right. And so the owner of the data center where CME is out in Aurora, um, a company called Cyrus One, they last year built a new tower that's right next to the data center. And the point of it is that people can put their dishes, uh, traders can all put their dishes on there and it'll be closer. And they'll kind of get rid of all the gamesmanship to kind of buy land near the data center, put equipment close to the data center. And, but the, the thing that got thrown into the equation is that another company called Scientel announced plans to put um, their own tower right across the street. Um, and Cyrus One, the owner of the data center, says that tower is going to be in the way and it's going to kind of ruin their plan to level the playing field out there. It is amazing, right, Nick? And you know this better than we do. All the algorithms that are being written, all the advanced Mm -hmm. science, all the PhDs thrown at this. And ultimately, this may end up being, hey, he's in my way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the reality is these, these networks are very sensitive to, you have to have line of sight. The reality with microwave transmissions is each tower has to see the one it's communicating with in order to work. Well, guess what? Uh, contrary to what the flat earthers would tell you, the, wor- the world is round. And so there's, you have to deal with the horizon. So you have to relay your signal every few dozen miles or so from tower to tower to tower across the country from Chicago to New Jersey. If something's in the way, guess what? Your network doesn't work. So if Cyrus One is correct that Scientel is building a tower that obstructs, then there is an issue with their plan to sort of level the playing field out there. We mentioned there was politics involved. It has to be politics if it's Chicago. So tell us about that part of it. It's one of the fascinating bits about this is that um, with these networks, they, you know, they go across the country. So guess what? There's lots of municipalities you have to deal with to get permission to build a tower or get, you know, buy a certain piece of land or whatever. So in this case, um, the city of Aurora actually initially turned down Scientel's plan to build, uh, build their own tower. But with some, um, you know, they did a little lobbying, looks like, behind the scenes. They actually, you know, with perhaps help from the mayor... Um, they, the city council flipped, and uh, they actually voted a couple months later to actually change their mind and approve the Scientel Tower. 
And so tell us about the trading firms and how they're involved here. Yeah, I mean, everyone in the industry is trying to figure out, you know, why did Scientels pick this location? I mean, there are some easy to understand reasons. Aurora is trying to build their economy. They want to get high-tech firms out there. They've got actually a a very high-tech fiber optic ring that sort of can convey information around that area that is actually appealing to a company that is involved in technology. So that's an obvious reason why they've come to Aurora. But there is the the question of why did they pick that particular spot that is right next to the data center, allegedly in the way of the the transmissions from the data center. So it's got got some people wondering, are they working with someone? So that's editor Nick Baker. We caught up with him in Chicago. And Jason, this is a story anybody involved in trading will love it because it reminds us that it's all about making faster and faster trades that can add up to millions and billions of dollars. Well, and I love how he ties together so many different things that have been at the forefront of people's minds all across the investing world. Flash Boys, of course, the Mm -hmm. book by Michael Lewis, and also the power of some of these big firms, including Citadel. Maybe they're involved, maybe they're not, but their name's certainly being bandied about. Jason, in fact, it's a of two towers, but only one tower has been built. Carol, we live in a world awash in content, to say the least. And notably, it's the 20th anniversary of The Sopranos. I don't know if you caught up on that or not. You're a Jersey girl, after all. Uh, And it really set the stage for peak TV that Mm -hmm. we're still living in. But it also set the stage for a lot of competition there. And of late, a lot of turmoil in the world of HBO. Richard Plepler stepping down unexpectedly. So what does it all mean? Let's ask Felix Gillette, who yes. writes about it. It's the cover story mm-hmm. in the magazine this week. Yeah. So tell us what you set out to do. Set out to do was basically look at, you know, how we got to this point where Richard Plepler, the longtime head of HBO, resigns this past week. 27 um, years at the company. Yeah. Long time. And it's kind of an end of an era. And Plepler's whole thing was always, you know, HBO... He would tell everybody, we're a media company. We're not a technology company. And, you know, along comes AT&T, which is now really seizing control of um, Warner Media and all the assets and moving forward with this plan. And their big plan for the future is, uh, in part, that they want to roll out this direct-to-consumer streaming service by the end of the year that will compete with Netflix and that will pull in all this programming from the Warner Media assets, TNT, TBS, Warner Brothers, and HBO is going to be a huge part of this. So what I wanted to set out to do is like, okay, HBO has been kind of dabbling in this world of um, direct-to-consumer and streaming products for, you know, uh, almost a decade now. And yet somewhere along the way, they fell way behind Netflix. And why was that? And what is it like to work on the technology side of a business that says explicitly, we're not a tech company? And what I found, you know, talking to all these people that have passed through um, HBO is that a lot of people have been both enchanted and ultimately frustrated by this challenge over the years of trying to optimize HBO and the internet. Right. And a lot of it has been cultural. And a lot of it has been, at key moments, things almost happen where you could almost see HBO really taking over the internet and owning the internet in the way that Netflix now does. So it's this fascinating counter history of what went inside HBO while all the programming was great, all the innovation was happening on the programming side. Why didn't that innovation translate to the consumer and to the streaming products. Well, and it's so interesting, too, because you think about some of the players here, and, and we've been talking about a, a little bit of it even before we came on air. And, and I recall, you know, one line, I think, from Curb Your Enthusiasm, a great example <laughs> of a great HBO show mm-hmm. where Larry David says, what do you mean it's not TV, it's HBO? It's TV, you know? And, <laughs> right. and the thing is, is that they really did own TV. But mm-hmm. to your point, yeah. you mentioned a great quote from Ted Sarandos, yeah. and, and he really set it up. Yeah. I mean, he has this famous quote he said in 2013, right around the time that Netflix was rolling out House of Cards, which was one of their biggest first big dramas, um, kind of HBO style programming. And he said, you know, we we need to become HBO faster than HBO can become Netflix. And that says it all. It's like mic drop right there. What does that mean? Well, I think what that means is that, um, you know, Netflix was this culture of, you know, data science, engineers, figuring out the science of television. And that's what they were really good at. And HBO was really good at the art of television. 
And what's fascinating is that over the past five, six years now, what you've really seen is that Netflix has mastered the art of television much faster than HBO has mastered the science of it. Right. And let's not forget, I mean, I mentioned Curb Your Enthusiasm just because mm-hmm. it's a favorite show. But, I mean, you think about the shows that came through HBO. It's Soprano, Sex in the City. Right. I mean, think about everything. Game of Thrones. Game of the Thrones. Wire, Game of Thrones, right. Veep. I mean, there's endlessly great programming that they've done. Um, and what's fascinating is also, you know, this challenge of what to do about HBO's future you know, it, it's complicated because there are all these rights that are tied up with various distributors. All of HBO's revenue historically came from its cat- satellite and cable distributors. Mm-hmm. And so from the very beginning, when you know the first dawn of, of this technology was coming out, they had to be careful because they didn't want to upset their partners right. uh, who were the distributors and, you know, launching aggressively into internet distribution would have done that. So they kind of had to be cautious at various points. But they did have teams working on this very early. Uh, You know, their first um, test of... Uh, allowing HBO subscribers to watch HBO programming via desktop or laptop computer. They tested this in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, among Time Warner cable subscribers back in like 2006. They were very early. Wow. And as Netflix was kind of coming up, their internal tech team was looking at Netflix. And there was this amazing moment in about 2007 where you know Netflix started off you know, sending DVDs to people by the mail. Um, And then 2007, they launched this streaming service for the first time where you could watch shows over the internet. It was tiny at first. There was just very few shows you could actually watch. They didn't have the rights to much. But, you know, HBO's internal team was watching this and they said, hey, you know, that's a really innovative company. What they're doing would be a great compliment to what we're doing. Time Warner should buy Netflix. We should go out and buy Netflix. Uh. It wouldn't cost much. So these guys put together a proposal and they sit down and they say, you know, probably costs, you know, billion, billion five, somewhere in that range. Maybe we should think about this. It'd be a great compliment between HBO and Netflix. Time Warner would have this incredible leverage in downstream movie and TV rights. You know, we would get their uh, innovative technology. It would be this perfect fit. So they put a proposal together. They, you know, fly it up the executive flag chain, you know, uh, ranks, people look at it, um, they consider it, and eventually uh, another team of Time Warner and HBO executives say, nah, you know what, like, <laughs> let's just spend that money on programming. It's not right. worth it. HBO, you know, we we have everything. We're, you know, we don't need Netflix. We and, can get to whoever we yeah, want. And yeah, and Netflix is probably going to flame out anyways. There was a real belief among some people in the company that, you know, their model wouldn't work. They were spending too much money. Um, eventually, uh, people would stop licensing their content to Netflix. And so, they decided not to do it. Um, and, of course, now, you know... Netflix has 130 million subscribers around the world. You know, HBO uh, has about, I think, 8 million standalone internet subscribers. Big difference. So I am curious with AT&T, which is definitely on a a mission to create synergies now within Mm -hmm. all the different properties. Is it an easy kind of flip for HBO who has good content, right? We all talk about it's about content at this point and grabbing the eyeballs. Is it easy for them to kind of go into that streaming tech? It's not going to be easy because at a certain point in 2014, um, HBO decided that they were working on, they had this internal team working on building a platform, a tech platform that could serve both AT&T and Time Warner, very much what AT&T wanted to do now. But it was having problems. It was crashing. They wanted to get the standalone streaming product ready for the Game of Thrones premiere in the spring of 2015. And at a crucial moment, they decided, you know what? We're going to go with MLB Advanced Media to do this product. And MLB Advanced Media was at that point a subsidiary of Major League Baseball, and they developed this expertise in streaming big online TV events. Um, And so at, at a crucial moment, HBO decided, okay, we're going with you guys. We're going to pull the plug on our internal product. We're going to pull the plug on that team. And we're going to let you build our standalone streaming app. So they do that. And in the short term, it kind of works. Like, you know, Game of Thrones comes along 2015, spring of 2015. They roll out the product. A lot of people sign up. It doesn't crash. Things look great. <laughs> but very shortly after that, along comes Disney and makes a billion dollar investment in 
what was then spun off from Major League Baseball to become Bam Tech. So Disney comes along and says, we're going to become majority owners in this business. And suddenly HBO finds that a key part of their future, the infrastructure, now owned is Disney. now owned by their rivals who right. are going and building their own streaming empire. And so it's been this very uncomfortable fit. And it was kind of unclear what was going to happen to them. Well, along comes AT&T and says, okay, we're going to buy the whole company and we're going to build your future for you. Um, but of course, then that gets caught up in regular uh, hurdles and, you know, takes forever for the deal to close. And there's been this kind of period where they've nothing much has happened. And meanwhile, Netflix is racing ahead with their program and their technology. And now AT&T is coming in and yeah, they're going to have a huge challenge. Um, it's getting all the personnel on the same page. Right. It's yeah. getting all the brands on the same page. They have to and untie. And now playing catch up. And, and right? the code, all the rights, they have to solve the problem all over again that a lot of people inside HBO were really trying to solve five, six, seven, eight, right. nine, ten years ago. That's reporter Felix Gillette. I love catching up with that guy mm -hmm. because he really is able to go deep, so well-sourced in that world. And a lot came out of that story that I think people didn't expect so much nuance about where HBO goes from here. Well, and in chatting with the editor of the magazine, Jill Weber, we just talked about how years ago everybody wanted to be HBO when it came to content creation, and now everybody wants to be Netflix. It's amazing. And I, I that quote really sticks with me uh, that Felix repeated in that interview, this idea that Ted Sarandos over at Netflix said, we've got to become HBO before HBO becomes us. So this week, the Democrat leading the House Committee on the Judiciary sent a letter to Tom Barrack. Of course, we know who he is, Jason, of Colony Capital. He was the former chairman of Donald Trump's inaugural committee. And uh, this letter was asking about the inaugural committee's work. Well, and specifically, one of the issues that's come up is the classic, what did he know? When did he know it? And when did he say what he said right. and claims not to have said? We're talking about the president, of course. And here with us, Caleb Melby. This is a fantastic story found only online, businessweek.com. Check it out there. But Caleb, tell us what's going on. This is about planning a party. This is about planning a party, a huge party, a party that costs about $100 million uh, uh, around the inauguration of President then president-elect Trump. Um, uh, of course, that inaugural effort is now under a bunch of investigations. The latest, as you point out, is uh, the letter from the House Judiciary Committee asking questions. But there's also federal prosecutors in New York and attorneys general in D.C. and New Jersey who are looking in a very broad-based way at how this committee for the inaugural party raised the money, deployed the money, its relationships with donors. It was a hundred and $7 million, they, a record, right? A record, yeah. About, twi about twice as much as Obama's, which had been a record before at $53 million. Um, so the White House has recently said that Trump had nothing to do with the planning of the party in his honor. Um, and we knew from sources around the campaign, the transition, um, and the inaugural that that uh, that wasn't quite true. So we we set out to tell the story of how Trump helped plan his own party. And anyone who's been following Trump as president, as candidate, as businessman over the last 20 or 30 years probably could ascertain just <laughs> instinctively <laughs> that he's going to be involved because he is – a showman. I mean, and he understands the power of visuals. And tell us how exactly he got involved because he went deep. He went very deep. So uh, some very broad top level things like as they were planning this from the earliest days, like he would call his good friend, Tom Barrick, who is chairman of the inaugural uh, in real time as they were having meetings and trying to figure stuff out uh, so he could weigh in. Um, and uh, he also was very curious for a while in the idea of selling exclusive rights to either some or all of the inaugural uh, to broadcast companies. And his favorite for a while was uh, Fox. Right. Um, President, to be fair, President Obama did that too, didn't he? To certain parts. Yeah, so so Obama sold certain parts uh, to HBO and I believe ABC. So that that would not have been unprecedented. Uh, but he uh, personally had some calls with Jeff Zucker, president of CNN, where they discussed where it might be CNN and Fox. Um, now, no 
exclusive rights deals ever came to fruition, but a lot of the discussions around that were taken care of by Trump himself. Um, there was also the issue of the Rockettes. I'm not sure if you remember this, but the Rockettes, the famous New York City dance troupe, um, uh, James Dolan announced they were going to be performing for the inauguration. Trump loves the Rockettes. And, but immediately after they were announced, some members of the Rockettes spoke out on Instagram and elsewhere mm-hmm. that they were unhappy to be performing for a president with these politics. Uh, so Trump got very nervous and uh, he called the inaugural committee. He called Tom Barrick and he, and he said, hey, do we still have the Rockettes? They yeah. did perform. Uh, and yeah, these anecdotes go on and on. But, but, but the point being, the president was, of course, intimately involved in the planning of this thing. And uh, that could raise. But that alone is not a problem. No, of course not. It, where, where does the problem arise? Because I think people are listening saying, well, so what? He cared. He wanted the rockets. He, he likes a party. Yeah, he likes the party. <laughs> he cares about these things. Where does the problem t- make the connection for us? Sure. It, 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 and yeah, that's totally reasonable. And it, it only becomes weird when uh, Trump's spokeswoman at the White House, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, has denied several times that he had anything to do with this yeah. other, other than going to the balls, raising his hand uh, uh, over the Bible and everything else. Um, uh, and that's just a weird, uh, relatively easily disprovable uh, thing to say. And and then you have to wonder if that in turn exposes him uh, in any of these broad-based investigations that are going on around the and committee that's right the now. Is, right? In terms of how the money was raised or you whatever. Well, that's the thing is investigators' questions are so broad right now. It's really hard to figure out yeah. what exactly they're after. But we do know they are asking about how the money was raised, how it was spent, um, interactions with donors. Uh, it, it's, it all seems to be on the table. For and, the and we should note that some of the people who uh, have of late been in the news uh, for on some of these ongoing investigations, including Rick Gates, a deputy mm-hmm. to Paul Manafort, an employee at one point, I believe, of Tom Barrick's as well. Yes. Yeah. He was he was later hired as a consultant uh, to uh, Barrick's firm, uh, then Colony North Star, now Colony Capital. Um, yeah. So Gates was deputy chairman of the inaugural effort. He, of course, has already pled guilty to conspiracy and mm-hmm. lying to the FBI in relation to work he did unrelated uh, to the campaign in the inauguration. Uh, in Ukraine with his former boss, Paul Manafort. That's reporter Caleb Melby. A little bit more insight uh, into the president or then president-elect Donald Trump's inaugural committee. So this week, General Electric, Jason, we know, in the news again, the stock took a hit as the company's new boss kind of warned of additional cash problems at the ailing company and really just eroded confidence in the company's turnaround. It's another chapter for the once almighty General Electric, which at a time included a finance business that was considered too big to fail by the U.S. government. Much of that is gone right now. So where does it go from here? <laughs> That's the real question. And Shanali Basik, she has the answer and it's in a bit of an unlikely place. Shanali, welcome. Tell us about it. It's not obvious to a lot of people, right? GE was bigger than most banks. People forget that. Huge. And they financed a whole horde of things, right? The only, and now, a lot of that money, for example, is going to Apollo. That's that's the heart of this story. Apollo is one of the biggest private equity firms in the world, and it's known for its buyout prowess, right? But it's not known for what it's actually much bigger in credit. So now they actually have an insur- they have multiple insurance companies. They have um, a, a stake indirectly in a mortgage lender. They have mortgage REITs. They have commercial real estate lending. They actually lend to deals for other buyout firms that are much smaller. So they have this huge conglomerate here um, that kind of operates in lending markets that are unregulated. And part of this happened, right? Because in the wake of the financial crisis, a lot of big banks got out of mm-hmm. some of these businesses. And instead, some much more lightly regulated firms like Apollo, Blackstone also in this business, uh, and others. Why has Apollo been so especially successful here? Partially because of its leadership. Um, Josh Harris, Leon Black, um, Mark Rowan, they came from Drexel Burnham Lambert, right, which was kind of the junk bond titan. And so they know these markets. But on top of that, uh, even as assets fled from the large banks, talent also left. Mm. So the person who runs the credit business at Apollo is this guy Jim Zelter, who was formerly at Citigroup. And so he knows these markets really well. He's bought on Citigroup uh, talent as well. And so even 
the banking talent has moved over to these private equity firms to make this happen. But your point is that this guy, Jim Zelter, he wants to create the GE Capital of tomorrow, right? And is and specifically looking at some of the former GE Capital assets. So something interesting about this, too, is Zelter would tell you that this is kind of a metaphor. He could have said Citigroup. He could have said CIT. He could have said anything yeah. else, really. But the thing about GE is that after having $500 billion in assets, it's actually selling a lot of those assets. Mm-hmm. So as some of these assets potentially come to market, Apollo is in a really good position and maybe one of the only or at least a small group of players that can take these assets on. And so remind us exactly what they're doing here. What do these loans look like? Who are they going to? And and, and what does it look like in aggregate, I guess? Sure. So um, one of the vehicles, Apollo makes the strategy work through a bunch of different vehicles. That's why it's not obvious to a lot of people. But one of them, for example, is Midcap. In 2015, they bought another piece of a lending venture from GE and Midcap started as a small healthcare lender. And now it lends to nursing homes and expanded into more buyout debt. It's a lot um, more expansive and small loans than people would think. While a lot of them are small loans to kind of small businesses and whatnot, they're also really big loans that come out of this business. Mm -hmm. Um, We had talked about before Westinghouse, uh, the nuclear power company, right before it went bankrupt. um, Apollo had agreed to commit like $800 million dollars in financing. Mm. So they do loans of a lot of different sizes. And I believe that was ultimately bought by another private equity style firm, uh, Brookfield Asset Management, the big real estate company that also has uh, a private equity arm as well. Apollo also publicly traded. I mean, this is no small shakes when it comes to assets. They just raised two years ago, the mm-hmm. world's largest buyout fund in history, 24 plus uh, billion dollars. So where does this firm go from here? You know, it's funny. Private equity credit, something else people don't realize about Apollo is that it's also one of the biggest insurance companies in America. Not Apollo itself, but it has a stake in this company called Athene, um, which actually really helps this credit strategy. Insurance companies mostly invest in credit. Um, And so really, when you're buying a retirement, an annuity uh, from Athene, People don't realize that money goes right back into Apollo and its funds. And that that provides, uh, you know, a type of ongoing capital right. for them to Funding. invest exactly. that they wouldn't otherwise get. All of this money is locked up for 10 years or so, so it's a lot of money that doesn't flee right away. Well, that's mm-hmm. what I was wondering about. You know, What is it about Jim Zelter? What is it about Apollo that they're going to make their version of GE Capital work when we saw what happened to the former GE Capital? So the insurance piece of this puzzle is no small piece of the puzzle. So um, it's something now that most private equity firms are actually trying to replicate. Yeah. Blackstone is trying to get deeper into the insurance business. Carlisle is as well. And so by having that permanent capital that's not called really quickly, they're able to invest in credit assets more heavily. And so this is a huge part of their strategy. They got into it right after the crisis. They bought all of these insurance assets on the cheap. And so, and now they're expanding globally. And so that head start is really helping Apollo catapult above everybody else. Also so interesting to see how quickly, to your point, Shanali, that they're able uh, to expand. You wonder if there are more sort of acquisitions for the company that they uh, may make as well. You talk about uh, hiring more talent, and the appetite mm-hmm. on the part of investors seems insatiable for these uh asset classes. It's completely insatiable because it's hard to find returns elsewhere, right? Especially in debt markets. So these private credit assets are much more profitable. Midcap last year alone had a 19% return. Wow. So that's pretty good, right? right it's right. not something you find everywhere nowadays. Are other folks kind of watching their strategy though? Cuz like, yeah. as you said, like you know, this is a firm that's willing to go where other people maybe aren't so willing to do. Are other folks kind of looking to imitate them? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, like Jason had mentioned, Blackstone is right. one of them. Carl has another one, Oak Tree, Aries. The thing about it that is hard is the structuring of the vehicles. They have been genius at doing this, right? And the insurance play, again, is something that's helped them. By the way, with GE alone, you know, some of the assets that we believe are coming to play, right? Uh, according to people familiar, people have said that Apollo may bid for an aircraft leasing business. Mm-hmm. Apollo already has an aircraft leasing business. Yeah. So it would fit nicely into the strategy for them to buy that from GE if it's something they were to do. What do regulators uh, think about this? Because obviously, you know, one of the things that happened in the wake of the crisis was lawmakers, regulators started to pay a little more attention to the GE capitals of the world. Some of the big right. uh, Wall Street banks that we all know, are they keeping an eye on this as well? 
It's really hard because from regulators, we've heard for years they're looking at non-bank lenders, but they've failed to be very specific at what non-bank lending This whole shadow banking universe, right? Exactly. And that's part of the reason we wrote this story. Apollo is arguably one of the biggest in this market, right? And so um, we're starting to put names to what are the non-bank lenders and, and what it means. A very important caveat, I'm sorry, is that how it's financed. Yeah. Because the money is coming from insurance companies and investors and not short-term financing from banks like GE had, that's what they're saying their advantage is here. That's reporter Shanali Basik. A fascinating story. We know, Jason, you love the world of private equity, and PE is increasingly becoming a bigger part of our investment world. And this story just talks about Apollo wanting to become the next GE Capital. Well, and I have to say it dovetailed very nicely with my mm-hmm. remarks yeah, uh, in the magazine this week. See that little shameless plug well there? Done. All about sort of the role that private equity is playing and stepping in where big banks are really no longer allowed to be. So Jason, El Salvador, uh, known for having one of the world's highest murder rates and for one of the country's small cities, that distinction has created a big business. We're talking about coffins. Amazing story here and a lot of surprises. Jeff Muskus, technology editor, edited this story Tell us how this all came about. How'd you discover this? That's a little off-brand for me, but our, <laughs> to have a talented freelancer named Matthew Bremner brought this one to us. It was going to be in El Salvador already and, and discovered while he was there this, this uh, small town of about 18,000 people called Ucuapa uh, that's also home to about 30 uh, coffin factories, uh, about uh, 18 or so regulated and a few more besides. A lot. Tell us about why there is such a demand, obviously. I mean, I mentioned it in the introduction. Um, there's a lot of gang warfare that goes on. Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's for, you know, as you might imagine, pretty grim reasons that uh, El Salvador is, you know, one of the uh, the, the worst uh, uh, sites of uh, homicides, at mm-hmm. least by per capita, it's supposedly the, the highest rate in the, in the world. Uh, and this, this traces uh, to gang violence uh, that's been uh, exacerbated between uh, principally MS-13 uh, and Barrio 18 uh, over the last few years as uh, the the incoming uh, presidential administration sort of blew up a, a, a brief truce, a fairly um, uh, short-lived one of right. a few years between uh, the two gangs. It was brokered by the Roman Catholic Church of all people. Well, and you uh, bring us some very vivid details about this and and Take us to the story of the Pacheco brothers, uh, I, I believe, who were in a very different business before they got into making coffins. That's right. They uh, they were running a bakery in what's now their uh, their funeral parlor uh, in Huquapa, and the, the two of the three brothers um, have now uh, tried to uh, to take the money that they've made from first by uh, selling coffins on their own and then um, from buying coffins from other sources and, and running their funeral parlor to try and make the uh, the parlor into um, you know next to what was once their their uh, bread oven uh, to make it the the principal uh, embalmment facility for the surrounding area you know Jeff and you're right you do so much technology so this is a little bit different from what you and I and and Jason talk typically about. What's interesting about this story is that it takes you to a part of the world that we don't normally talk about. How did this reporter get the access? Because even the folks that are in the coffin business, sometimes the gangs are tough on them. Like they've got to be very careful, uh, you know, in terms of doing, going about their their normal business. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, um, Matthew, for this story, talked to a few uh, folks in the coffin business who were former gang members right. uh, and, and wanted to be kept anonymous for that reason. Um, but uh, for the most part, the, the Pacheco's, like uh, a few others, were um, uncommonly forthcoming, partly because, you know, as, as Matthew sort of lays out in the story, they've been surrounded by death, unfortunately, their whole lives. Is it that lucrative, though, right? And forgive me for getting kind of into the financials of it, because this is a, a country, an area that uh, doesn't, the individuals, you know, and average family doesn't make an awful lot of money. So I'm just curious about what this is as a business. Right. The, yeah, the Pachecos, the two brothers who are still uh, running the the funeral parlor in Iquapa, um, the other brother and their their dad have gone off to start a different uh, business elsewhere in El Salvador. Uh, say they're making somewhere between $2,000 and $4,000 in a typical month. And while it doesn't sound like a ton, it, it's a, a decent uh, payday by El Salvadoran standards. Well, and one of the... I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of perversions, economic perversions of this is that 
in being successful by selling coffins, they actually insulate themselves to some extent from the violence that's around them because these gangs mm-hmm. often prey on the economically disadvantaged, right? True. It also keeps them from from standing out in a certain way in that, uh, you know, as, as some of the, the coffin makers that Matthew talked to over the story say, you know, because there's so many factories running all the time, it keeps margins, particularly on the, the bare bones models, down enough that uh, you're not uh, you're not standing out as a particularly uh, viable target for gang activity. Interesting. In talking to the reporter, what really struck uh, the individual who was there on the ground? What struck him as he was doing this story? I'm just curious the conversations that you guys had back and forth about it. The thing that was most shocking to him was just how uh, accustomed to. Uh, the sheer gore and and the grisly nature of the job that the brothers seemed um, and and their sort of uh, ease with and, and relative comfort with death sort of up until you get to the last scene in the story where one of the brothers is at a funeral for one of his, his lifelong like childhood friends. Yeah, that's what is interesting is as the reporter wrote this story, um, he's doing his job just as the Pacheco brothers are doing their job. Yeah, they organized the funeral for that friend, which is it's a pretty brutal scene and, and worth reading. Well, and this is a writer who, you know, you guys know, has worked with us before. He's written, I believe, about the drug trade uh, in uh, the Rohingya refugee camps as well. I mean, it's a really, uh, unfortunately, powerful story that is not unique to just one yeah. area of the world, but um, it, but happening all over. Yeah, Matthew's seen a lot, but but even by those standards, the, the story yeah. stands out. That's editor Jeff Muskis. And Carol, this was a tough story to read and to talk about in yeah. some ways. Really incisive look at the economic impact of violence. But this is what the magazine does, right? Takes us to places all around the world and just reminds us this is what life is like in a small city in El Salvador. So the pursuit section of the magazine is about food and chefs who already have restaurants. They love what they're doing, but they are now branching out. Well, you know what it actually is? It's a tour de force written mostly by Kate Crater, which is (laughs) so exciting for us. She's here with us in New York. How do you tackle a project like this, Kate? Because you're all over the map in a great way and understanding how food is playing into the hotel business. It's really, well, it's a really cool thing. You know, you've seen chefs have restaurants and hotels, but it's getting increasingly hard to be in the restaurant business. Margins are shrinking, rents are rising, um, minimum wage is going up. And so chefs have been pretty clever about figuring out other ways to make money. And one of them is just to become the hotelier, to cut out the middleman and open their own places. And it's working. It's working. Well, a lot of them, some of them have new models. So a couple of them have been in the business for a while, like mm-hmm. Alain Ducasse, who's arguably one of the most famous chefs in the world, started this in the mid-90s. He opened a country in, in France, and he has at least one more property, I think. It hasn't worked out so well for Gordon Ramsay, who opened a place in London and had to close it. Right. Presumably, he yelled at himself <laughs> when he did. <laughs> One um, can only imagine. <laughs> he can, but now there's a new, it's, it's really cool because you're seeing more and more chefs decide that they want to be the property owner. But it's smaller properties often, right? Yes, exactly. It's smaller properties. Um, in fact, the exhibit A of that is a chef called Enrique Alvera, who is, he is always near the top of the world's 50 best list. He has a restaurant called Pujol in Mexico City. So he opened up this tiny place. It's basically like an Airbnb. It's an apartment above his original restaurant. It's like light and airy, plant-filled, and you they make you breakfast, and then you um, you can hire one of the chefs to make you dinner. And it's just a great way to immerse yourself in Mexico City. I love this. And I love this notion of, you know, we have lived for a while now in the age of the sort of celebrity chef. But this is really taking it to a different level because, you know, how bad, how much better to express your personality than by actually creating a temporary living space. For exactly. Someone. Exactly. It's really it's it's a cool way to to get people involved in your brand, basically. So Nobu has become yes. the like the name. Like, in fact, a lot of other chefs are like, I don't want to be Nobu or they say <laughs> I do want to be Nobu. But Nobu currently has eight hotel restaurants um, around the world, and he plans to have 20 in the next couple of years. And what's special about those? What's the signature there? Well, what he said, what he and his partners have said is that they want to be food forward. Like some places want you to know, like, because it's going to be all gold ornate or whatever. And um, what Nobu says is it's sort of a food forward mm. thing. 
is his concept is food forward. So you will find his miso cod, you know, his famous, like the dish that really put him on the map. You will find that there, but he's making food an integral part of it. And a lot of people travel for food now. They want to experience a place um, via the food and the community there. So that's really cool. And as you mentioned, the margins are much better on the hotel business. Yeah, exactly. One we had, I talked to this great chef. um, He's in England and he actually drew a great comparison. Like he said, he was at the place he was at for 20 years. He asked to be made a partner after 20 years. You would think um, they would say yes, a place called Gidley Park. And they said no. And he said, it was like you ask um, the girl to marry you. And she's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So he was like, time to move on. And he did, right? He did. He opened this great sounding place called Limstone Manor, which is in Devon, you know, in like Southwest England by the water. And he is, but he explained that the margins on restaurants are generally less than 15%. They're like basically around 12%. But if you have a hotel, if you have rooms, it goes up to 30%. And if it's in a destination outside the city where you can combine them, where you have sort of like customers who aren't going to leave, the yeah, margins have a captive can go, audience. Captive yeah. audience, exactly. The margins go up higher. Well, and we certainly are living in a time too where people are willing to pay up for experiences, yeah, right? Exactly. And so if you can give them even more of an experience, then you're probably going to get even more, as they say, share of wallet. <laughs> share of wallet. I want to go to Normandy, France, because I. Uh, they said, what is Don't, it? Let's go. Wait. <laughs> uh, from the oven, brioche butter from the farm next door and fresh honeycomb. I mean, you, they really are like tapping into then whatever in the area, right? Exactly. It's really local. I mean, that's the thing. These chefs, these chefs invariably support their local farmers and they're showcasing food made with those ingredients. Kate, when you get set out to do this, and obviously you guys were noticing the trend, I mean, is it a ton of places that you're that, that are doing this, a ton of chefs that are doing this, or a growing number of chefs? It's a growing number of chefs, a lot of them who have like name recognition. Like in Spain, there's a trio of brothers called the Roca Brothers, mm-hmm. um, who have also topped the world's 50 best list. And they're opening a place in Girona, Girona, Spain. And um, Alex Atella, who is one of the famous chefs in South America, has like a 35-story hotel coming. Clearly, he's not financing that all by himself. All right. I want to jump to something later. Eventually, I want to get to more Tabella. Mm -hmm. Okay. I really (laughs) want to talk about that. But while we're talking about restaurants in, you know, maybe slightly unlikely places, uh, (laughs) Saks Fifth Avenue, importing its own restaurant. What's going on there? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It was um, (laughs) kind of amazing. It's a place called Lavenue. Is that amazing in a good way? Is that amazing in a not so good way? It's amazing in a lot of different ways. (laughs) Um, I love that look on Kate Crater's face. Go on. um, So it's um, an offshoot of a place in Paris that is basically a canteen for the fashion set. It's right in like the fashion district. Rihanna hangs out there. Justin Bieber Sounds gets like it fights outside. So um, this place is still figuring itself out, but they've made a lot of, to my mind, wacky decisions. And the first was, why not open for lunch? If you're at Saks where they just made a major renovation, like showcasing yeah. bags on the first floor, yeah. I would think you would want to go shopping for bags and then go get some energy, you know, go upstairs and have like a delicious burger or like People a club sandwich. People who lunch. Well, it's a the Fred's at Barney's model, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We joke that that's like the elephant in the department store is, um, is Fred's at Barney's. And so... Lavenue perplexingly is only open for dinner. There's no salads on the menu, which you would think that a lot of the ladies who lunch are looking for a salad right right away. Um, There's not even a burger on the menu. So maybe they're going to show us something that we don't know. But the food was kind of ridiculous Um, on the couple of visits I've been there. They had had steak tartare that was sort of the size of a football. Oh, my goodness. And um, they served it, like, naked, like, just... Steak tartare with what the server said was homemade mayonnaise. And I think it had a few other things in it, but that's not really how you make steak tartare. Right. And when I asked for toast, they brought me some warm toast. And that's weird. Like yeah. to have raw beef with warm toast, like that's not what you do. I, so. I do like that you point out that uh, Carolina Kirkova and Michael Cohen have dined there. Not together. Not together. I want to make a point. We don't want to start any false rumors. But you also said just physically finding it and getting there was oh a bit God. of a trap. It's definitely like your Fitbit. If you have your Fitbit on, you're going to clock some serious points. It takes like, you have to go up to, especially now when if you go after the store is closed, you have to find this sort of secret entrance on 50th Street and then go up and you walk down one hallway 
past like toilets where the doors are always inexplicably open. There's a lot like I'm not a restaurant designer. I feel like I could I can help them out a lot. But it's kind of crazy, right? Because Ralph Lauren just opened up their own restaurant. Was it in the last year? A couple, a couple years? years. Yeah. And they've done really well. Oh, my gosh. Like you these- can't get in there. You can't get in there. And even Restoration Hardware in mm-hmm. um, the meatpacking district, people, a lot of people are talking about the burger. So you would think like go in like Saks has just done this great renovation, go in strong with like great, great food. So what on the plus side, like let's be positive, maybe they're waiting because they know lunch is their big deal and they right. want to iron out all the kinks, but there are a lot of kinks to iron out. So from the restaurant that doesn't quite work yet to the cold cut, can I even call it a cold cut? Ah! It does work. Ouch. Oh, more to- <laughs> I love all right. Know. I knew it. I, have- I just wanted to poke the bear. <laughs> actually, a, a former colleague and her husband took my wife and me to the U2 concert at Giant Stadium. This is years ago. She's Italian, and her mother opened up a tailgate that was basically fresh bread and mortadella, Ugh. and it it made the night. I mean, U2 was great, but that was That was amazing. the star. That was the star. They outshone you too. so delicious. Well, when you have it, you know what? When you have it, it's real mortadella and it's not bologna because it's definitely suffered from a case of mistaken identity um, a lot in the United States. So a lot of people think it's bologna and it comes from bologna, in fact. So, but when you have a good one, this, um, one of the chefs, the chef at Frenchette, Riyad Nasser, described it as just like this voluptuous charcuterie because you get like little bits of fat in yeah. there and uh-huh. it sounds disgusting but it melts in your mouth and the quality of the meat it's really well spiced it's really like one of the most elegant charcuterie and, and, and nice it's, buy yeah. a little recipe what <laughs> i mean diy make yeah, it yourself exactly. yeah tell us about that well oh this is God. um this is from a really cool bar in the west village called katana kitten and they make so they make something called sandos which are japanese sandwiches on this like fluffy white bread but they take thick slices of mortadella like you do not want to like pan fry thin slices here yeah. you take like a thick slice and you basically coat it in breadcrumbs a little bit of egg breadcrumbs sear it in a skillet and some oil and then God. you put it on this bread with like a little bit of Dijon mustard and some teriyaki sauce and it's like eating the best like it had it's like the best hot dog like it sort of snaps it's got that juicy snap it's outstanding that's Pursuits editor Kate Crater she's got the best job she totally has the best job and but we did work her pretty hard this week she essentially (laughs) wrote uh, the entire section and I was much more partial to the mortadella than the canned fish yeah exactly although editor Joel Weber from what I understand he likes seafood in a can a big fan and that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast thanks so much for joining us I'm Carol Masser and I'm Jason Kelly be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2pm Wall Street time and if you can't catch us live do check out our daily podcast for the ride home and you can find it at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. You can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.